All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. In this session, we're going to be looking at a really large chunk, but we're going to do it in sort of an overview fashion. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6, verse 8, all the way through the end of chapter 7 in verse 60 of that chapter. This scene from the book of Acts and from the life in the early church really begins a new major section in Luke's organization of Acts. We said that chapter 6, 1 through 7 is the end of like Act 1 of the drama. Well, here we're beginning Act 2, and it obviously flows out of the last snapshot. We're still dealing with Stephen, one of the seven men who were chosen to oversee the distribution of the food to the widows. And yet this section is really the launching pad for the outward expansion of the church beyond Jerusalem. It takes place in Jerusalem, but it lays the theological foundation, if you will, for ministry to go beyond Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, and even outwards from there. So this section is really the launching pad for outward expansion of the ministry and the mission of the early church. So we get in this section... Stephen and Stephen's speech that leads to Stephen's death. And his speech, if you will, really lays the biblical and theological foundation for God being bigger than and beyond just the land of Israel and just the Jews. And then what we get in the ensuing chapters are we welcome the very first non-Jews, the Samaritans. Uh, We welcome other outsiders or marginalized people. Uh, Then we all of a sudden get the conversion of the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul. And by the end of this section, we will welcome in the very first Gentiles into the church family as well. And so beginning here in Acts chapter 6, 8, and all the way up through the next handful of chapters, we're in major section number two of the book of Acts as the church begins to move outward. This section begins by describing for us Stephen's ministry, the impact of that ministry, and then what happens to Stephen. And so Acts chapter six, verse eight says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people couple things that are important to note there. The first is this, is if you recall the list of the seven helpers that were chosen in the earlier section of Acts chapter 6, Stephen was described there with some extra adjectives as well, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Um, Here we get full of grace and power, and in that power, he's performing great wonders and signs among the people. What's fascinating about that is this is the first time somebody other than an apostle is said to have performed miracles. In the previous six chapters of Acts, it's always the apostles who are performing the signs and the wonders and the miracles among the people. Stephen is the first non-apostle to do that. And there's been a lot of wrestling with, well, how did that come to be? Were other people doing miracles and Luke not mentioning it? It does seem that the miracles in the book of Acts, particularly in these early chapters, were limited to the apostles. And Stephen, as one may be authorized by an apostle, credentialed by an apostle through the laying on of their hands in the previous snapshot, uh, thus seems to have been endowed with power to perform miracles. It's not 100% clear, but that seems to be what's happening here and what happens elsewhere in the book of Acts. So Stephen is 
carrying on ministry beyond just serving the uh, the needs of the widows. His ministry has expanded beyond that, and now he's performing miracles, uh, and he's even going to be teaching and preaching. Look what happens, verse 9. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up against him and argued with Stephen. So apparently Stephen's ministry has expanded and increased, and now he's attracted the attention of some of these people from what's called the synagogue of the freedmen. Freedmen were uh, former slaves who had been either in some way they either bought their freedom or they, someone else bought their freedom or they were manumitted, released from their slavery by their owners. And so now they are freedmen. And so this is presumably what this synagogue, at least not maybe exclusively, but predominantly is made up of, not totally sure. Uh, and Luke lists off some of the places where some people are from. Cyrenia, northern uh, Africa. Alexandria is a major city in northern Africa. Uh, a famous, well-known major city. Cilicia, that's uh, southern, southeastern modern-day Turkey. Asia is western modern-day Turkey. And so, in other words, we have diaspora Jews, it seems, who have returned to Jerusalem and who are participating in synagogue worship, which means they would be Hellenistic Jews, like Stephen was. And we talked about those in our last session. And they rose up against Stephen and argued with him, but they were unable, verse 10 says, to cope with his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. And so they, Stephen kept besting them in debates, kept showing them that Jesus was the Messiah, kept pointing out to the truth of, about Jesus. And they'd had enough, and so they decided to, 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 in some way, stop or do away with Stephen. Verse 11 then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him, dragged him away, and they brought him before the council. And so there's some men from this synagogue who opposed Stephen. They accuse him of blasphemy against Moses and God. And they, they essentially... I mean, not even officially arrest, they just drag him before the Supreme Court, and Stephen's going to have his day in court. Not only that, verse 13, these men put false witnesses forward who said, this man does not speaking against this holy place and the law. So the holy place is the temple. So they're now accusing Stephen of speaking against the temple and speaking against the law, the Mosaic law. For we've heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs handed down to us by Moses. Now, let's just talk about the charges here against Stephen for a second, because they're really important in order to understand Stephen's speech. He's been accused of blasphemy, speaking against Moses and God, sort of catch-all categories. Then it gets specific here in verses 13 and 14. He doesn't stop speaking against the holy place. And we've heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place. Remember Jesus' words about that in the Gospels, how Jesus said he will you know, destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. They took it meaning the literal temple. Jesus was actually talking about his body. Well, uh, somehow they've taken Stephen maybe mentioning that or something as speaking against the temple. 
and speaking against the law. So as Stephen is standing there and these charges are brought against him, verse 15 says, And all who were sitting in the council stared at him, and they saw his face, which was like the face of an angel. And that phrase means or suggests the idea of innocence, composure, that Stephen was standing there and he had just this look of complete composure and innocence about him. That's the force of that phrase. And so the high priest asked Stephen, are these things so? Are these charges against you? Do you genuinely lack reverence for the law of Moses and the temple? Do you speak against these things? And Stephen now is going to launch into his speech of defense from Acts chapter 7, verse 2, all the way down uh, to Acts 7:53. In fact, it's the longest speech recorded in the book of Acts. It's longer than any of Peter's speeches. It's longer than any of uh, Paul's speeches. This speech is long, which means for Luke, this speech was important. And the reason it's important is because it really lays the, the biblical or theological groundwork necessary for the expansion of the church into non-Jewish territories and onward into the Gentile mission. And so uh, Luke felt compelled to record a lengthy version, a lengthy summary of Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin. Um, and because it's so long, it's kind of complicated and it can get confusing. So here's what I want to do. Rather than going through all the details of Stephen's speech, I want to offer an overview for the things you should look for and how to read his speech. Because when you listen to Stephen's speech, it really is, in a lot of ways, just a review of Old Testament history. It's, it's a review of the history which all those sitting in the council would have known. But it's a review of that history done in such a way to make several key points that lays the groundwork for the fact that the gospel is bigger than just the Jews, bigger than the temple, bigger than the nation of Israel, and lays the groundwork for the gospel going to the Samaritans in the next chapter and on to the Gentiles just a couple chapters down the line. And so, so let's just step back and look at a big overview of this speech so that we understand what Stephen is really doing in uh, giving his defense by reviewing Israel's history. And in order to appreciate the force of Stephen's speech in his context, we need to understand a few things about kind of the Jewish thought world of Stephen's day. The first was complete exclusivism, that there was strict separation from others, from Gentiles, even from the Samaritans, that they were exclusive. They were God's people, and they alone were God's people, and that exclusivism kind of kept them apart from others. Not only that... They had a very high sense of national pride. Only Israel was worthy to receive the law. And that's why God gave it to them, because they alone were worthy of the law. And then one other key component is, is the priority of the land of promise, that, that that physical land was their land. And it was important so much so that being buried in the land actually gave you priority on the resurrection, almost guaranteed your resurrection. So they had this very strong view of the land of Israel itself. And so uh, exclusivism, the priority of the land, their racial worthiness to receive the law, all of that super important. And Stephen's speech engages all of that. Stephen begins his review of their history like any good Jew would with the person of Abraham and then on to the patriarchs 
uh, including Joseph himself, and then up to Moses and David. That's sort of the flow of Israel's history, and thus it's the flow of Stephen's speech. But here's here's what's fascinating. As you read through Stephen's speech, what you need to pay attention to is all the places that God spoke to people and all the places that he appeared to people, right? Like God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. God never allowed Abraham to possess even a foot of ground in the promised land. The same is true with Joseph, right? That he, God was with him in Egypt, not in the, the promised land, but in Egypt itself. God made Joseph to rule in Egypt. Uh, the patriarchs lived in Egypt. Moses was born in Egypt. He experienced Egyptian education. God appeared to him in Midian and said it was holy. Moses never even entered the land of promise. All of that that you see in Stephen's speech, things like that, helps make the point of giving the land of Israel demotion, that they they were so proud of their land, they viewed their land as their possession, God had given it to them, and they, in a sort of sense, limited God to it. This is God's land. And Stephen is essentially saying, look, God can work outside of this land. God has. He did it with the patriarchs. He did it with Moses. Uh, that God's not limited to this land. And that's one of the first major points of Stephen's speech. Closely related to that is the second major point Stephen makes as he reviews their history. And that is God's not bound to his temple. God appeared to Abraham. He was with Joseph. He appeared to Moses, all apart from the land and all apart from the temple. Furthermore, in the wilderness... He says, our fathers didn't even have this temple. They had the tabernacle. Um, And David, who's like the hero of Jewish faith, he never even had the temple. He wasn't even allowed to build the temple. In fact, God doesn't live in human buildings. He made everything. And so point number two that Stephen makes in the way he tells the story is, God isn't bound to the temple. You guys are so fixated on the temple and you're so fixated on you know, everything happening here and this being the centerpiece of everything, but God has worked consistently apart from the temple, without the temple, and all our great heroes and patriarchs of the faith, they didn't even have the temple, so God's not bound to the temple. And the third and final point that shows up routinely in Stephen's speech is how God's law and God's leaders have consistently been rejected by God's people. The patriarchs grew jealous of Joseph and sold him into slavery. Moses supposed that they would understand God was using him to deliver them. But no, they didn't understand that. They rejected Moses and chased him away. And it was this very Moses that God appeared to in Midian whom God sent and they disowned him, right? And so over and over again, Stephen keeps emphasizing how God's leaders and God's law have consistently been rejected by God's people. So that's the third and final point Stephen's speech really makes. It shows that just because you're part of God's people doesn't mean you're faithful. Just because you have, uh, you know, Abraham's blood and DNA flowing through your bones doesn't mean automatically you're in with God. God has had to deal with an unfaithful, rebellious people throughout their entire history. And so there's Stephen standing before the council himself, being accused of speaking against God's law and God's temple. And what does Stephen do in his defense? He gives God's temple and God's land a demotion. Uh, He accuses God's leaders and God's people of consistently rejecting people God has sent to them. 
And so Stephen courageously uh, really confronts the leaders by saying, your theology is askew. Uh, it's not me who's in error. It's you in how you've elevated the temple, you've elevated the land, and you are just like others among God's people, kings in the, the Old Testament who rejected prophets and those who were sent to them. And so Stephen ends his speech after this review of history really with a, a stinging rebuke of the Jerusalem leadership. He says in verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Stephen ends his speech with this direct accusation to the very leaders there, um, accusing them of being stiff-necked, which is a phrase that means like rebellious, stubborn, unwillingness to listen, uncircumcised in heart. That's a stinging rebuke, right? Like uh, Stephen knows their history that circumcision is, is symbolic of a greater circumcision and that circumcision of the heart. And, and Moses had said that uh, there's going to come a day where God's going to finally circumcise the hearts of his people. But these guys haven't experienced it yet. That you're resisting the Holy Spirit just like your fathers did, just like the Jewish leaders that you can read about in the Old Testament who resisted the prophets, rejected the prophets. He goes on and he says in verse 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had been previously announced the coming of the righteous one, and you have now become betrayers and murderers of him. And so, they killed the prophets who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and you're actually murderers and betrayers of the very righteous one, meaning Jesus himself, the Messiah. You who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. So Stephen's defense of himself is really not a defense. Stephen doesn't defend the accusations, and he doesn't defend himself. He actually goes on the offensive and um, by going on the offensive, he says that uh, your understanding of things is wrong and you're currently resisting the Holy Spirit because you are the people who betrayed and murdered God's righteous Messiah, the one that we've been looking forward to. And so Stephen's speech really is, is a, not a defense so much as it's a, an attack on their misunderstanding and their rejection of Jesus' Messiah. And needless to say, they don't take too kindly to this. So look at their reaction in verse 54 of chapter 7. Now, when they heard this, they were infuriated. They began gnashing their teeth at him. So the leaders are enraged. They begin grinding their teeth. Verse 55, but he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Notice that uh, Stephen is given a vision by the Holy Spirit into heaven, and he sees God's glory and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And what's fascinating about that is everywhere else, the exalted and risen Lord Jesus is described as being at God's right hand. He's sitting. He's sitting. But here he's standing, and that's led to a lot of speculation as to what the difference is. Uh, most saying he's standing to receive uh, Stephen to himself. He's standing in uh, honor of Stephen's defense and Stephen's sacrifice that's about to come. Whatever it is, here Stephen gets this vision of the glory of God and Jesus standing there. And Stephen says, 
Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen then speaks about what he sees, that he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That echoes back to Daniel chapter 7 and the Son of Man vision and the Son of Man being coming up to the throne of the Ancient of Days and being seated on his throne. And now Stephen basically says, I see that, and the Son of Man being Jesus. And they would all know who he was talking about. And, and so with that, they're done. They, that's it. They can't handle it anymore. So they shouted with loud voices. They covered their ears because, no, we're not going to listen to this blasphemy, this awfulness from this man, Stephen. So they covered their ears. They rushed at him with one mind. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And they, the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this is where we get Saul introduced into the story of Acts. Uh, as is typical in the book of Acts, Luke introduces major characters before they play a major role. So here's our introduction to Saul. And he'll be very important in what follows. And before too long, we'll actually get Saul's conversion. But here... They, they, as a crowd, they basically escort Stephen out of the city, but they don't do it gently or politely. This is uh, more like mob violence. And so they rush him out of the city. They take off their outer garments because they're going to be picking up rocks and throwing them on Stephen. So they're now stripping down for work. So they take off their outer garments. They lay them at Saul's feet and they begin stoning Stephen, which means throwing big rocks on him to pummel him to death. And they went on, verse 59, stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord. So St Stephen is being pummeled with rocks. He's calling out and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And who does that sound like? To me, it sounds like Jesus on the cross as he's hanging there. And he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Well, here's Stephen saying essentially the same thing. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And once again, that sounds like Jesus on the cross praying to God, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That Stephen has learned to die just the way Jesus died with the same dignity and grace and courage that Jesus had. And, and with that, he fell asleep and he died. And Stephen, not one of the apostles, but Stephen is the first martyr for his faith. He's the first person killed for his faith in Jesus that we have in Scripture. So he gets the longest speech, and he's the, the very first person martyred for his faith, and he, he does so with the same dignity, humility, and grace that Jesus displayed as he was killed. And, you know, it's easy to read a text like this, a passage like this in the Bible and like, oh, wow, and be so amazed and so impressed. And we forget to humanize people like Stephen. Like, did Stephen have a wife? Did he have kids? What about his parents, his mom and dad? When he got up that morning, you know, he didn't plan on dying that day. And so what were his plans for the evening? And what did he expect to happen that day that didn't happen because of the way the day's events uh, work and when do you stop feeling the pain when you're being pummeled by rocks like Stephen was a real person who in his faith and faithfulness to Jesus uh, gave up his life and did so with humility and grace in his service and his commitment to Jesus and he sets a really striking and powerful example for us that way
Now, there are a lot of details in Stephen's speech that obviously we didn't cover. We, we just gave kind of an overview of it. And if you're a person who loves the details and you want to know more about where all these places are, Mesopotamia and Haran and all those places and some of the details of Stephen's speech, uh, I will eventually get a document in the study hub on the listener's commentary website that you can check out if you're a part of the hub. Uh, we'll get a document in there that gives those details and helps us flesh out the story a little bit more. But for now, I want us just to step back and reflect on how does this speech fit into the narrative of the book of Acts? And as I said at the beginning, it really lays the foundation, the groundwork for the outward movement of the church by saying God's not limited to this land. He can work outside of this land. He did in our history. He did with our patriarchs, right? God's not even limited to this temple. As great and as beautiful and as awesome as it is, God's not limited to that. Uh, that God is broader than all of this. And from the very moment that Stephen gives his speech, all of a sudden now Luke is going to begin turning his attention outward beyond Jerusalem. We're going to go into new territories. We're going to begin expanding into Judea, Judea and Samaria. And then we're going to begin from there getting the apostles of the Gentiles, getting the first Gentiles and looking towards the ends of the earth. And so Stephen's speech opens the door to help us realize that God's bigger. God's bigger than just the Jews. And from Stephen's speech on, the apostles seem to get that. And, and the people that are scattered because of Stephen's speech and the persecution that arises thereafter, they begin to go about like seeds in the wind, going to new places and telling the story of Jesus in new areas. And the message about Jesus begins to expand all throughout the surrounding areas. And so Stephen's speech really reminds us how easy it is for God's people to get entrenched inside their own little group, behind their own walls, in their own little spaces. And Stephen's speech reminds us that, that God's for everybody, that God's bigger than one nation, one race, one location, one place. God's for everybody. And Stephen in giving his speech, really says that to the Jews. And it angered the, the leaders, and it got Stephen killed, but the truth is still the same. And so even today, as God's people in Christ today, we need to consistently remind ourselves that God is forming a people made up of every nation, language, tribe, and tongue, and that he's gathering them together as a kingdom and priests unto Jesus, the Messiah.